And when I was growing up, my birthday was often celebrated, not at my house, but at campgrounds. That was part of the birthday tradition for Darren, is that we would usually, it was June 28th, so it's right there. Uh, you know, we, we celebrated 50 together. I got to join you guys for that under the portico. But most of my previous 50, or at least my previous, my first 18, were spent camping at different campgrounds and those sorts of things. And there was one campground in particular that we would go to frequently, and I would, I would uh, enjoy being there. My parents would enjoy being there, and we would celebrate Darren's birthday. Well, because of the way the campgrounds work, you know, you'd often get to know some of the people, the, the people who own the campground and stuff like that. And so every year we would come and we would celebrate my birthday. And interestingly enough, some of the neighboring, like, you know, plots kind of got involved and they liked the, the season of Darren's birthday. They enjoyed it as well. And, and it wasn't just after a little while, the fact that my parents would give me gifts, the, the spirit of gift giving just took over that campground. And and, and the owners of the campground were so happy about what was going on that these neighboring plots would be giving gifts to each other that they began to decorate. And, and it became known as one of the most wonderful times of the year. And it was just amazing. There would be songs that we would sing about, you know, this wonderful season and, and gay happy meetings that were happening there at the campground every summer. And, and they, they started to advertise it. It became lucrative for the owners of the campground, and so they would decorate trees and put up all these decorations, and it would all be in honor of the wonderful time that was going on. And well, one year, I, I, I couldn't make it to this celebration, and, and my parents, they had the celebration without me <laughs> because the celebration of my birthday had turned into such an activity there. At the, this story isn't really true, is it? It started true, just so you know. And if my parents are watching, I, you, we were on the same page until that campground thing. <laughs> and at this time of year, I'm not sure why I would invent a story like that or think about the possibility that a whole season could emerge and the person whose birthday it is could be forgotten. But let me just encourage you, as you're planning out your next couple weeks, beware. This isn't just a season for family. This isn't just a season for gift giving or charity or Christmas miracles or Hallmark movies about love. As much as I really enjoy a good Hallmark Christmas movie myself, and as much as I enjoy The Grinch, and as much as I enjoy, you know, little songs, I think Linus got it right. And we need to remember what Christmas is all about. That's part of the reason we're doing Advent. But it's also part of the reason that when the season of Advent is over, we'll be continuing in seasons all year long. Because what we want to do is to remember that it's not just this season that belongs to God, it's every season that belongs to God. And over the last couple of weeks, we've tried to remember that hope isn't hope the way the world defines hope. Hope is, according to the Bible, something that is established because God has not given up his plans to redeem humanity. And so humanity has hope because of Christmas. We remember, too, that joy isn't just getting the stuff we want and being happy in our circumstances. Joy is the presence of something that is the result of that hope. And in the same way that we need to remember what words mean and not let the world define them for us, we are entering into 
season of peace. Advent is a season of hope and joy and love and peace. And in particular, we're thinking about peace today. And we're going to do so from a non-traditional Christmas text, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 in verse 1 begins this way. It says, therefore, my brothers. And every time you're not hearing something referenced to the word brothers, by the way, in the Bible, and there's not really a particular gender point that he's trying to make where he's just talking to the guys. You can read that, and we're not being, you know, fast and loose with scripture. You can read that word, adolfoi, in Greek. You can read it as brothers and sisters. It's a way of saying everybody that's here. Therefore, my brothers and my sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And as he introduces chapter 4 that way, you got to know, if you had read chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's the same tone all the way through. Paul's been having a tough go of things. And yet when he thinks about the church in Philippi, everything that he thinks is really wrapped up in the kind of terms he puts out there. My beloved, my joy, my crown, my family. He's talking about this church that's doing a great job. And he just wants to encourage them in the midst of their persecution and their generosity to keep going. And so as he ends in, or he begins the chapter that ends the book, he starts this way with verse one. And you got to feel this sense of like, ah, oh, well, this is going to be a nice conclusion to the book. And then he, can, he says this, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Can you imagine if our church got a letter, and for three chapters and one verse, we were doing great. Everything was encouraging. We just heard nothing but positives, truths about God, truths about the gospel, truths about Jesus, truths about us, and how we were doing well with all of those. And then he says, oh, by the way, those two ladies that have got a squabble going on, can you help them, please? I entreat her, and I entreat her. Would you please patch it up? It's an odd thing to paste into a letter like this. It feels kind of like something that's out of nowhere. But he says, I ask you to, true companion, help these women. But he describes them this way. Here's their history. These women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In other words, he's saying, in light of everything I've told you, our partnership in the gospel, your sacrifices for the gospel, the fact that God has done all these things to give you an eternity of peace together, would you please help them attach those realities to this one conflict? He had said earlier in Philippians, our citizenship, it's in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. In other words, think about the worst problems going on. Is your body fading? Is your mind fading? Are you having troubles? Or is your body doing great? And it just comes with all these urges and struggles. And you're just wondering, when will this body ever work the way it's supposed to? Paul says, yeah, don't worry. 
Your final citizenship isn't here. It's not among all the little squabblings and all the little ways. It's not among all the henpecking that goes on. It's in heaven. And ultimately, when we reside there perfectly, body and soul, our bodies will be like his bodies. He's going to conquer the problems with your body. And if he can do that, he can help this little thing that's going on. Pull the splinter, guys. You're bumping up against it all the time. And if it was that easy, we just would have done it. And yet... James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your communication just needs to improve a little bit. Is it not this? You haven't compromised enough. You just need to find ways for you to lose and you to lose and you to win and you to win. We just need another strategy. We need to adopt this kind of principle so that, but no, he just says this. Here's the problem. It's not strategic, and it's not political. It's internal. Your problem is that your passions are at war within you. And then suddenly he shifts in one little verse. He shifts and says, you want something to have, and so you murder. You covet, and you cannot obtain it. So you fight, and you quarrel. And you get this sense that James isn't just talking about our little problems. He's talking about problems the way Jesus talked about them. You don't have problems with adultery, but with lust. You don't have problems with murder, but with anger. And your anger problem actually is what leads to murder. When we understand conflict that way, we recognize the problems that we have can't be solved by mere strategies James goes on and says, if you really wanted the things that were at war within you, you know that the way you ought to get them is to actually be asking God for them. In other words, you're asking each other for something only God can provide. And if you think of most of the times that we're not at peace, it's usually because of that. There's something that's bugging us deep down. When I was in school, one of my counseling professors used to like to play a game called, what would that accomplish? And what he said was, you can play this game with anybody in kind of any way. You can do it in a really wooden way. And so he asked us to sit down with each other and to start talking about just the last time that things haven't gone well with somebody else. Either a relationship that was disappointing or a relationship that there was anger involved or something that, you know, really involved a lot of grief, but just something that didn't work out. Think of a specific conversation and talk about that. And then the only thing, so I sat down with this lady and she was telling me a little bit about her relationship with her sister. And as she would talk and then she'd get to the end, the game was I could only ask one thing. What do you want to do? Part A. And then if she would answer that, I'd say, part B, what would that accomplish? It was the only thing I was allowed to ask. And five minutes later, she was crying and talking about the fact that if only that would work, she'd be able to get her dad to love her. And you know that? I wouldn't tell that story if it was an anomaly. If it was like, well, that never happens. Usually when we're honest, when we talk about something that's disappointed us or hurt us, at the end of the day, we get to deep desires, don't we? And when Paul, when James, when Jesus, 
when the prophets talk about peace, that's what they're talking about. What we usually think about with peace is kind of like this slide. You got the next slide there? That one. You ever seen a movie where one of these standoffs have happened? Everybody's got their guns. They're all drawn on each other, and everybody's trying to figure out who's going to shoot who. Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Everybody's trying to figure out who's going to shoot who, what's going to happen, how's this all going to work out. It's the ultimate rock, paper, scissors, right? I can defeat you. You can defeat him. He can defeat me. And we're all trying to figure out who's going to put our guns down first. It's stupid in movies, right? But it's such a tactic we use with each other. Why? Because we're all so worried about where we're vulnerable and we're all unwilling to put down the things that we think is going to protect us. And when we enter into relationships like that, it just, it betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of what we ultimately need in the world. Did you hear it when Jenna was reading from Ezekiel 37? She was describing peace. What you might have heard in the Bible is shalom. Shalom isn't just the sense that everybody puts their guns down and yet everybody hates everybody. Peace is more the two ways that a couple can be in silence. You can see a couple sitting there, both of them quiet with their arms folded. And it's quiet. It's silent. You might be tempted if you closed your eyes to think it's peaceful. But if you looked at them, you think, ain't nobody at peace in this relationship. But the same lack of noise can be going on. You can look at a couple that's just sitting with each other, just content. Maybe they're looking at each other. Maybe they're holding hands. But you look at them and you get a totally different vibe. That's a little bit more what it means when the Bible speaks of this shalom. Everything well, everything okay. Everybody's settled in their land. Everything going right. That's what the Bible means when it speaks of peace. And for the longest time, the world's been trying to figure out how to do it without Jesus. And 2,000 years ago, God got tired of that. And at the perfect time, sent his son to bring peace. And as we look at Philippians 4, that's ultimately what the believer has because of Christmas. Not family, not a time of miracles and movies and everything like that. But the certain sense that everything with them can be okay And if that's true, then everything with others can be okay too because I'm never at threat. I'm never at war. I'm never worried because I'm okay with God. Two points on what peace looks like for the Christian. The first starts in verse four where we get this idea. We are guarded by the peace of God. We're guarded by the peace of God. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And remember, just in case you forgot, this is right after telling the two ladies that they need to come together and agree. And right out of that in verse four, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, with an asterisk, we'll talk about that in a sec, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now that word reasonableness, 
it is a reasonable choice of a word. And I am certainly never going to put myself in the place of make, talking to any of the people that translated the ESV and tell them they got one wrong. But I want to help you read it in a way that's a little bit easier. Because if you have a different translation, what you might see there is the word gentleness. And in fact, the ESV was probably in a toss-up. You can sometimes tell in your Bible when they're really, really confident about something and sometimes when they're really not very confident. And sometimes when they include something and they're like, we really probably shouldn't have put this in here in the first place. You're going to find that when we get to the end of Mark. It's that way. There's something in there that's probably not scriptural, but it was always a part of Mark. Oh, well, not always. It at some point became a part of Mark, and they kind of realized it's probably not. This is sort of one of those 50-50 balls. They're not massively confident in reasonableness. And there's probably a good reason to think that a better word there would be the word gentleness. Maybe one of the better spots to see that is go back to James again. In the book of James, you read, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. That word gentle right there, it's the same word that's translated as reasonableness here. But can you see how weird it would be in James to translate that as reasonableness? Right? Because then you'd be saying, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, reasonable, open to reason. That, that would seem a little redundant, right? This word, though, from Greek can kind of come across with the two sense of meanings. And I'll, I'll put a link to it. John Piper did a little thing that he calls look at the book. It's basically a little online study of a passage. And he's got a really good explanation of why he thinks this word is gentle. And again, in this particular case, we're just going to say, but I kind of wish that on a 50-50 ball, they'd gone with gentleness. Because understand a little bit how that fits into what it means for us to be able to access peace through this text. Here's what he says. Look back again. Rejoice. Be gentle. Don't be anxious. But be prayerful. Rejoice. And be gentle. I like the combination of those two realities. Not somebody who's just so giddy, Pollyanna, ignore everything about life, that they're just sort of bringing this weird energy into a conversation. But there's a genuine joy, like we talked about, marked with and attached to a real gentleness. Almost something you might say was requiring a certain sense of peace inside. Be happy, but be content. Be rejoicing, but be gentle at the same time. It's kind of the way the world would experience you. It's kind of the way we would experience each other. But then he turns to God and says, on the inside, don't be anxious, but when things are worrying you, pray about them. So rejoice and be gentle. Don't be anxious, but be prayerful. A little earlier, he had said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And that's the passage that really led into what Keith was helping us understand from communion. 
the whole way that I can be at peace is to consider Jesus, who could have been so anxious and worried about everything he was losing in the incarnation, but instead had a completely different mindset. He didn't do anything from selfish ambition and did nothing, certainly from conceit. But instead, in the oddest transaction, God humbled himself. And if you were watching Jesus' life, you'd think that he thought that other people were more valuable and more significant than he was. How could that be possible when Jesus, in some level, seemed to know the course and the trajectory of his life? If he knew that the end was going to lead to nakedness, shame, and crucifixion, then why wouldn't he be grasping for things all the way along? Why not try to win and accumulate as many little battles so that they could balance out on one side of the honor scale so that I could get as much credit, as much honor, and as much recognition over here because I know that at the end of the day, I'm going to be naked and embarrassed in front of everybody. If that's where it's leading, then I probably need to get a lot more. But Jesus didn't have that energy at all throughout the whole course of his life. He was everything Paul says. He was prayerful. He wasn't anxious. He was incredibly joyful and gentle. He was in charge. He was in control. And that seems to be because he knew that at the end of his day, the end of his story wasn't nakedness and shame. The reason we sang here I am to worship is because God had highly exalted him as a result of everything that was going to happen through the course of his life. The incarnation was going to lead to something that brought everything right at the end, even though there would be little losses and great loss in Jesus' life. But Paul says, if you can live that way, here's what will happen in verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So if we think about this again and just try to understand a little bit of what he's actually saying at the end of the day, the question we have to ask is this. And Isaac, if you can jump to the question. How does Jesus' arrival on the earth as a human being make it possible for the peace of God to guard the people of God? In other words, if we're not talking about Advent as a season of peace, meaning, hey, guys, come on, quit squabbling with each other. Could you just try to sort of overlook some stuff and get along just for the sake of Christmas? We're getting together. It's family time. It's church time. It's whatever time. Can you just try to buck up and be at peace with each other? That's faking it, right? That's not, that's not Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. He never said, blessed are the peace fakers. And God is the ultimate, like, anti-peace faker. He's the one who squared up with where our problems were and brought actual peace. So we're not talking about Advent being a season of peace absent Jesus, right? We're not trying to think about some way that the world can absolutely forget about Jesus over the Christmas season and still have the peace that he was going to bring. No, they are absolutely linked together, which is why we started with that concept. He himself is our peace. And so this is the question. How does Jesus' arrival on the earth as a human being make it possible for the peace of God to guard the people of God? Let's think about Exodus 33 again. We've talked about this passage a number of times, but I think it's so relevant to this question. 
You remember in Exodus 33? It comes right after Exodus 32, in case you were wondering. And Exodus 32 is the part of Exodus where the people of God have not done well. They've been freed from Egypt. They've been delivered through the waters. They've been provided for in the desert, and they've come to the mountain of God where God instructs them, terrifies them, and instructs them, and then brings Moses up to the place where it seems like he's going to die because everybody else looked at the mountain and said, don't send us. If we go, we will die. You've said that. If we touch the mountain, we'll be shot with arrows. If an, a, a, an animal touches the mountain, it should be shot with arrows. If we go up, we're going to die. There's no way this is going to work. So Moses, why don't you go? And Moses goes. It's just he's gone for a really long time. And once he's gone, the people forget God. Once he's gone, the people forget the conquest over Egypt, the deliverance through the water, the provision in the wilderness. They forget all of that, and they say, Egypt was better, we should go back there. They've been saying that for a while, but they said it in a big way when they said, let's take off all of our gold, all of our jewelry, all of our ornaments, let's melt them all together and make one of those Egyptian gods, and that Egyptian god will give us access back to Egypt. This was a moment when the people of God were not at peace with God at all. And the story of God's response to that sin is brutal in some ways. You have a window into the wrath of God as the people of God reject their God. And so at the end, when it's all wrapped up, we hear this conversation. God's sending the people away from the mountain. The Lord said to Moses, depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, I will send an angel before you, but I will not go up among you. It's, it's a truncated version of the text, but that's the essence of it. The people of God have so thoroughly rejected God and yearned in adulterous ways for other gods that God said, if I go with you, I will consume and terrify you. You need protection. The only thing you can handle is if I send maybe a messenger who can maybe give you some of the benefits of what it would have been like to know me, but you don't get me. There's just no way you can handle me. So I'll send my angel with you, but I'm not going with you. And those of you who know the passage probably remember Moses' response. Moses said to the Lord, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. You see the answer to our question there? Would it ever have been possible for the people of God to understand the benefits God has for them outside of relationship, outside of his presence? You look back over the story of the Old Testament, you'll find no, never. The people of God could never be at peace at home without being with God. It's the storyline of the Bible. In the beginning, God and Adam and Eve are walking together in the cool of the day and then sin enters the world and the garden is no longer cool and at peace. Shalom has been broken. So if we truly want what Paul is describing here in Philippians 4, a reasonableness 
that's known to everyone, a gentleness and requests that are then made known to God and a peace of God that guards us. The question is this, would it ever have been possible for that to happen in human history without God being with us? Ultimately, the answer is no. Starts with the benefits. He starts kind of like with the angel going. And he's saying, what would be great is if peace from God could guard your hearts and your minds. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And we're all sitting there going, yeah, I'd love to have peace from God like that. I'd like to know that I'm okay with him, and I'd like to know that I'm okay with others, and I'd like to know that inside I'm okay. If you just asked me the question, what's motivating you? What's driving you through the course of your life? If I was saying, you're doing this, what would that accomplish? What would that accomplish? What would that accomplish? I love that my answer was always, it would just remind me that I'm okay with God. But the question is, does Jesus' arrival on the earth as a human being have anything to do with the peace of God guarding the people of God? And the answer is, absolutely it does. Because if we go away from any mountain without God and we try to fake like the world does that we get the benefits that God brings without actually being with God, we are going to be a lost and a desperate people. We're going to be motivated by all these other things. We're going to be doing all this other stuff, trying to get it to accomplish all this thing in order to, to patch up a void that's there. But we don't want that. We do want to be gentle. We do want to be prayerful. We don't want to be anxious. We do want to be rejoicing. We want other people as well. If you go all the way back to verse 5, you want other people to be able to see that, right? That's the other thing that, that happens. It's almost as though he's starting with the hook and saying, wouldn't life be great if this were this way? If you weren't anxious, if you were prayerful, if when other people saw you, they just knew you as a gentle people. That's verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What if you could actually be known this way? Well, what if we didn't have to be alone to do that? What if it wasn't that we had to somehow accomplish this all by ourselves? And so Paul turns the conversation in that direction. And in verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And whatever you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and then here comes the promise. And the God of peace will be with you. See, not only are we guarded by the peace of God, we are also guided by what Paul then calls the God of peace. It's the same three words, it's just he reverses them, doesn't he? Can we have the peace of God absent the God of peace? Paul, at the end of this text, says, no, no, you really can't. Because to be a Christian isn't just about imitating Jesus or God or imitating our heroes, even as Paul is saying. 
It's ultimately about doing all these things with the promise that Jesus gave to us in John 14. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. But let not your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. See, Jesus takes the conversation, and he just addresses it backwards. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be afraid. What is he describing? He's describing an inner peace. But where does that come from? In the logic of John 14, he's saying it's the fact that you will never have to be alone. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, whom the Father is going to send in my name, will come and teach you all that I have told you. And so when I leave, I'm leaving you with my peace. As an angel sent to deliver a good? No. Through the Spirit who's coming to give us God's presence. The second question is this. How does Jesus' arrival on the earth as a human being make it possible then for the God of peace to guide his people? How is it possible for the peace of God to guard us? That's the question we have to ask. Is that connected to Christmas? And I'm saying, yes, I think it is. But the second question is, there's so much here that he's said to do, starting in verse 8, right? I want you to not think about all the corrupted things in the world. That's not really where I want you to fix all your energy. And as I'm wrapping up this letter, and I'm trying to get you to think about everything you know from me, because when I was with you, you remember my example, and everything that I've taught to you, not just in the first three chapters, but in everything you heard when I was with you and in the other letters that have been circulated to you, or if we were to translate this out 2,000 years later, we would be able to say, Everything that the Bible's given to us, there is so much data we have about God. We can't even claim to be ignorant. If we think the story's about us, just open up the Bible, open up its pages, see who God is, see what God's done, and see what people contribute to almost every story. And you get a sense of who's the hero and who's not. Paul's basically saying, I've, I've told you some stuff. But if you think at the end of the day, everything's going to be right simply because you can hear and obey or you can watch and imitate, that's not all that we needed. To ultimately be guiding God's people, God had to show up among his people. And here's where we're stuck. Because I have been Euodia and I have been Syntyche. So have you. In fact, you and I may have played the parts in that drama. You and I, over the past of our, my 16 years here, you and I may have been at points, at loggerheads. We might have been out of sorts. And the question at that moment, not just our potential conflict, but the ones that just dominate our lives. The question we have to ask when we've got our guns drawn and they're pointed at somebody and they've got their gun drawn and they're pointed at me and we bring in somebody else and find out that they're just bringing their guns out and now we're all just trying to have trouble. What do we do then? 
I would say that again, Bill. Fire? Well, I've been in a few of those conversations too. I will say how you answer that question at that moment depends on whether you believe a lick of anything that I've just said in this sermon. Because Christmas in America becomes garbage without Christ. And conflict in the church is just as bad without Christ. Paul offers the God of peace and the peace of God to Christians. And if we ignore Jesus the next time we're in a conflict, we don't believe anything I just said. You understand the issue? Paul says all that we just read on the heels of saying, these two good ladies with their names written in the book of life, partners with me, who've sacrificed for the kingdom of God with me, they can't get along. And the fact that they can't get along is like a splinter in the body of Christ that needs to be pulled, but they can't get it. Here's how to get it. Jesus came to put us at peace with God. Do you get that? Because if that's true, then it means we can grieve the things that have hurt us, but they don't have to control us. If that's true, it means that this this Christmas, you can address head-on your family dynamics. You don't have to ignore them. You don't have to drink them away. You don't have to sort of fake your way through peace. You can legitimately be ready to go to that meal and say, things are not going to be the way that I want. And if you take Jesus out of the equation, if you ignore everything that we just talked about, then you are going to do some really messed up stuff at that meal. Because you're going to be trying to do what James says. You're going to have these passions inside you, and rather than praying about them and giving them back to Jesus, you're going to try to accomplish something through that meal that's supposed to fill the void that only Jesus came to fill. But if everything that we just said in this message is true, you can walk into that meal, and if you're treated well, great. And if you're treated poorly, it's okay. Because you are guarded and guided by the peace of God and the God of peace. In some ways, guys, I I, I say, I think this is a Forrest Gump sermon. Stupid is as stupid does was his line. Peace is as peace does. And the only way we're going to remember if we believe this is the next time that somebody comes and accuses you, somebody comes and disappoints you, something happens that just, it's just, I don't even know the right word for it, but you know the feeling of it, right? And you just know that you are out of peace because this person who's been influential in your life has done the same thing that they did time after time after time. And it hurts every single time. And you're just not sure, can I ever be okay if I have to endure this? If you say, no, you don't believe this sermon and you believe Jesus came for nothing. It's probably a little extreme, but I want you to weigh it that way. But if we believe this, you can be okay because you're at peace with God and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have put us in